If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Friday, April the 13th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the Hoover studio, deep in the heart of Stanford University's campus, Terry Anderson. He is the Hoover Institution's John and Jean Deneau Senior Fellow, as well as past president of the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, and a professor emeritus at Montana State University, where he won many teaching awards during his 25-year career. Terry Anderson is one of the founders of what is called free market environmentalism, the idea of using markets and property rights to solve environmental problems. He is the author or editor of no less than 39 books, including 2016's Unlocking the Wealth of Indian Nations, Exploring the Institutional Underpinnings of American Indian Res- economies. Terry, welcome back to the podcast. Always a pleasure, Bill. Great to be here. Thanks. So, Terry, I'm a native of Virginia, and today is an important day to me because this is the 275th birthday of one Thomas Jefferson, born on this day, April 13, 1743. After this podcast, I plan to go home and have a sip of bourbon in Mr. Jefferson's honor. (laughs) Can I go with you? You may join me if you will. Mr. Jefferson, we think of him a lot of ways. We think of him certainly as a writer, a great thinker of the American Revolution and the American Republic. He also had some thoughts on urban versus rural living. And here's what he said in a letter to Benjamin Rush on September the 23rd of 1800. Quote, I view great cities as pest essential to the morals, the health, and the liberties of man. (laughs) Pest essential. (laughs) No fan of big city living was Thomas Jefferson. We don't think of Jefferson necessarily as a frontiersman, but we do think of somebody else on Mount Rushmore, the guy who's next to him on that mountain. That's Theodore Roosevelt. Now, Jefferson is responsible for the Louisiana Purchase. 828,000 square miles, which is larger than the combined acreage of France, Portugal, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, and the British Isles. Big chunk of land, big chunk of America. Teddy Roosevelt, though, we think of when we think of the West. And we think of two things in particular with Theodore Roosevelt. Number one, what he did in 1906, which we're still debating to this day, which is signing the Antiquities Act, which is something you've written about a lot. This is the idea of the federal government designating areas of land as national monuments. And this has become quite controversial under the Obama years. The other thing T.R. did is he doubled the number of national parks from five to ten. This is interesting, Terry, because when we think of Franklin Roosevelt, we think that he created the National Parks, the National Park Service, but he did not, did he? Oh, absolutely not. People often say, yeah, he he started the parks. He founded Yellowstone. Yellowstone was created in 1872, long before T.R. was president. Uh, And he did go visit there, and if you go into the main entrance uh, at at, uh, Mammoth Hot Springs, the arch is the Teddy Roosevelt Arch, and he was there to dedicate that. But he did not found the National Park System, and uh, certainly it was not his brainchild. What, What most people think of it as is a case of of a bunch of conservationists sitting around campfires wondering at the at the natural amenities of Yellowstone and saying we must protect them but mm-hmm. if you dig deeper and and I I just think this is fascinating it turns out the railroads were the big proponents for our early national parks Yellowstone was was the northern pacific it, the main line of the northern pacific went about 60 miles north of Yellowstone the Northern Pacific funded all the early expeditions to the park. They, they sent uh, painters and photographers. Uh, Thomas Moran, a famous painter, 
uh, went and painted many of these wonders. And when they were debating whether to create the park, the Northern Pacific put uh, paintings or photographs on the desks of people who might have been fence sitters on this issue to try and convince them that yes they should do this if you if you got a Thomas Moran painting you were <laughs> you your ancestors at least have a really valuable piece of art but if you look across all the major parks in the West uh, I said Northern Pacific for uh, Yellowstone Great Northern for Glacier Northern Pacific for Mount Rainier Union Pacific for Yosemite uh, uh, Santa Fe for uh, Grand Canyon. Every single one of them has behind it a railroad because the railroad said we can bring tourists here right. and, and the tourists will ride on our trains, they'll stay there. And Yellowstone, for example, the Northern Pacific even owned all the hotels. They owned all the infrastructure in the park. They built many of the roads. So you rode on the train from Chicago. You got there. You got on a Northern Pacific stagecoach, and you rode that stagecoach to a Northern Pacific hotel, and you ate Northern Pacific food. <laughs> a pretty sweet deal for the railroads. They were happy to – they didn't own them, but they, they might as well have since yeah. they captured the value. Terry, if you and I were to hop into our car after this podcast and drove to Yosemite, which is about, I think, about a four, four and a half hour drive from here in Palo Alto, we would get to the uh, environs of Yosemite and they would ask for money. And they would charge us $25, I believe, to get into Yosemite. Now, the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, has come along with a plan to increase that and increase the fees for other parks, and he ran into trouble. What what was the cause of the trouble that Zinke proposed? Well, the the... First off, the, the, the fees have been pretty stable for a long time, so just moving them any direction seemed like a lot. Right. He was talking about taking the Yellowstone fee, for example, from $30 to $70. And, uh, right, it's 25 in some parks, 30 in others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it varies a little. Right. But it, it's, it, and he was really focused with his, his increases were all focused on the the popular parks, the places where the most visitors come, mm -hmm. and for the the periods when they're the most visitors. So obviously that's the summer. Right. Uh, he propo he proposed the seventy dollar increase, and he hit a buzz saw uh, with uh, uh, many many voters writing in uh, with comments on it. Uh, but I. I think, and, and you know, some groups uh, were well organized and said, oh, this is outrageous. Most of them saying, how can the poor people visit Yellowstone if the fee is $70? Right. And th this isn't $70 a person, we should note. This is $70 per carload. So it, it's not if you go with uh, your two children and, and your partner, it, it, it's not $70 per person. It's so the whole carload. You drive in a car by yourself, it's $30. You and I drive in a car together, it's $30. You and I drive in a busload of 25 people. It's still the same cost. Or no, the busload bus. is more. I, I don't know the fee, but I think it's something like 300. But I'm not. Right. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I'm, I, I haven't looked at that for a while. But the point is, this is not a per person. This is a per car, and right. it's for seven days. Right. Uh, so you you compare that to going to a, an amusement park or to a movie, movie and it's, it's it's ridiculous. But back to your back to your your question of uh, what buzz saw did he run into? It was public comments. Uh, fed to mainly Congress, congressional delegations saying, we can't do this. Uh, so there was, there was this opposition from the people who, from the people, let's call it. Mm -hmm. But I think if you look more closely, this is, this is a case where Congress wants control. Mm -hmm. They don't want parks to become independent. Right. Yellowstone 
we can get to this later, but Yellowstone could be totally independent of its of its congressional appropriations if it charged $11 per person. Uh, but Congress really doesn't want that to happen because it would lose a lot of the control. Parks are sometimes referred to as park barrel politics. Right. And the local communities uh, want to have those where, where you own a motel or you own a restaurant. Uh, you want to keep it as cheap as possible for people to get in. And that's where the that's where the political pressure comes from. Now, the National Park Service, Terry, has a pretty small budget as far as the big picture federal budget goes. It's about $3.2 billion. And I think that was with a 10% increase this year. But it does have a big problem in financially, which is an infrastructure backlog, which is anywhere from 11.5 to $12 billion. How did this backlog get started, and how are you going to fix that backlog? Because my understanding is even if you increase the fees to $70 a car, that's still not going to get the job done. Well, I think I think the way to understand why the backlog exists is that uh, congressmen and women don't like ribbon-cutting ceremonies at sewer plants that uh, keep the water clean in a national park or a, a new toilet facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like to create new parks, and so if you if you every year we get at least one or two new parks. Uh, there's some small park being proposed in Florida for some person I'd never heard of. It wasn't a Thomas Jefferson kind of name. Right. Uh, if you, uh, but, but it's a national park. But it would be a national, national park, park, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, there are uh, 20, 20 national parks that have been added since 1980. And, uh, you know, you think 20 national parks. You, you mentioned at the outset that right. uh, TR increased it from 5, five to, to 10. 10. Right. <laughs> well, this is... The, twice what he increased it to. So uh, peop- the Congress likes creating new parks, but they don't like fixing the infrastructure. What, Filling what? potholes and so on doesn't happen. And, and so uh, the, the maintenance budget for parks are, are just trivial. And what does it take for Congress to create a national park? Just declare that this chunk of land here from, with X boundary, with X name on it, is now heretofore a national park? Is it that simple? Uh, yes. Uh, now, it, it, it's less simple if it, if it takes in lands that are not now federal lands. So, right, right. So if you're, if you're going to take in some land that's federal land and change it from, say, Forest Service or... Bureau of Land Management to a national park, uh, you, you get resistance from the other agencies right. and the bureaucrats, but it's much easier to do that than it is to, say, create Shenandoah National Park, which was a huge controversy because it involved, uh, uh, around the battlefields, involved buying up lots of private land, and, and of course, that led to, you know, takings and takings questions and, and how much would be paid for them. So that, that gets much more controversial and more expensive. In 2016, you wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal wishing the National Park Service a happy birthday, and there was a phrase in this op-ed that caught my attention, Terry. You wrote that the goal here is, quote, taking parks out of politics and politics out of parks. <laughs> clever, clever turn of the phrase, but what are you getting at? Well, the point I'm getting at is that parks uh, are, the funding is dependent on politics, and, and therefore the Park Service becomes political. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember once uh, talking to the superintendent of Yellowstone, and, and uh, uh, he was—he had gotten lots of pressure for gravel trucks to travel through a part of the park to 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 another gateway entrance because it was the shortest distance. 
And I said, well, why, do you let, why did you do that? And he said, because the people who owned the gravel company called their congressman and said, you know, we want, it, we want to save money and let us go through the park. And right. he understood fully, you know, you do not re resist that congressman and then go back the next day and ask for uh, an appropriation, whether it's an appropriation to uh, hire more personnel or, or to fix those uh, toilets that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So, so those those superintendents understand the politics of, of funding and they therefore have to be political. There is an advisory board for the National Park Service, Terry. There are 12 members. Who sits on that board? Well, it, it, there, it's mostly uh, people with an interest in parks, obviously. If, if mm -hmm. you uh, if you ask, uh, well, who would you want to be on it? You you might say concessionaires, for example, to have some kind of say. Mm -hmm. These are the people who run the hotels and and right. uh, other facilities and parks. Uh, you you would say gateway communities should have a say, and and you start making that list. Those are the people who are on these advisory boards, and what you have is again a political interest groups interest group, which goes right back to the point of politics and parks and parks in politics. Now, nine of the 12 members of that board have resigned. They have problems with Ryan Sinke, apparently. Do you know what the what the heart of this problem is? I don't know what that is, other than, other than again... Uh, are, are they Obama holdovers, or...? Uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure mm -hmm. how that's appointed, but, but, but I can... I, I know the controversy that's gone on there, and, and, and I think it's that... Uh, it comes back to to Zinke's proposed fee increase. It it Zinke uh, came in said, well why why are these parks so underfunded? Right. Let's let's have user fees. And in fact, today the the uh, chairman of the House Resources Committee, Rob Bishop from Utah, said this increase that's been uh, proposed is a step in the direction of a user fee system. Mm -hmm. And 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 people who love parks and who depend on parks for their businesses don't really want user fees. They right. want the federal government to pay the fee, and uh, uh, I think that's that's the crux of, of uh, why they're leaving. So Zinke has backed off the idea of doubling the fee, but he has since proposed, what, increasing it, what, I think five bucks? <laughs> yeah, from for Yellowstone, 30 to 35. So what's that going to do? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I mean, the five dollars. Uh, I didn't do the calculations for that per right. se, but it, it's a trivial amount onto the uh, the overall budget of the park. Not all of it will be kept at the park anyway. Mm -hmm. The the general f uh, distribution is that a uh, dollar paid at the gate, eighty cents stays in the park. Twenty cents goes to uh, uh, the National Park Service. It's it's now at least kept in the Park Service. Used to be that it went straight into the black hole in Washington, the right. Treasury, and and then whatever came back out came out. So that's that's changed. But uh, you know th this five dollar increase is is not going to have any effect on. On the park budget, it's not going to have any effect on the pocketbook of the people who visit parks. Right. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it'll it'll go through now without any trouble. Even had they gone to 70, it, it, it wouldn't have made that much difference to the parks. It certainly would have added some revenue for them. So this is a good point, I think, to talk about the financing of national of the National Park Service and park fees. And you've actually done some math on this. You came to arm, armed with a chart to show me. Let's go back 100 years ago to when automobiles were first making their way into national parks. And let's talk about, Terry, about what people paid then versus what they pay now. 
Well, I think first it's just interesting to to uh, look at the controversy on letting automobiles in. Mm -hmm. uh, the railroads had a monopoly basically on the internal transportation as well as right. on getting people there. So the railroads like you to get on their train in Chicago, come to the to the gateway at Yellowstone or Glacier or wherever it was, uh, then to board one of their stages and go into the park. And then when the automobile came along, it meant that people might actually drive there eventually and drive into the park. So the railroads just fought tooth and nail to keep cars out. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when finally that dam broke, uh, it was with Mount Rainier National Park, actually, uh, where the first cars went in in 1908. And the fee in today's dollars, so this is March 2018 dollars, right. was $507 per car. Right. Uh, and, and then when Yellowstone opened the gates to cars in 1915, uh, the fee charged by Yellowstone was $247. So these, uh, you know, these are, <laughs> were, Zinke was not talking about that, an right. order of magnitude increase. Yeah, I looked up some more math on this. Uh, 1908, Mount Rainier is the first park to allow yep. cars in. They sold 1,594 auto permits at a price in 2016 dollars of $475. In 1916, the seasonal price of auto permits in 2016 dollars ranged from $120 at Glacier Park and Mesa Verde to $240 at Yellowstone. Yeah, the, the, you know, well, and I think it's important to also just look at this period of time when right. they start charging these high, high fees. Politics drives them down very quickly to essentially, in real terms, adjusted for inflation, the same fee that they're getting now, the 30 25 to $30 range. Uh, and yet that same period of time, incomes in the United States increased nearly 75-fold. So, you know, we are, we are getting richer and richer, and we're still fighting over whether we should pay $35 to go into a national park. It's just absurd. I'm going to throw a bunch of changes at you, Terry, and then you're <coughs> going to tell me what you think of them, and then eventually we're going to get to what the Terry Anderson fix is. So first fix would be differential fees. Oh, differential fees are, are uh, a key part. And actually, they Explain what differential fees Yeah, is. well, differential fees are, you know, looking at, at the various demanders who are out there and charging different prices. So, for example, we could differentiate between foreigners and U.S. citizens. Right. Uh, Kenya, for example, does that. I visited well, Maasai Mara National well, Park. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Okay, so you <laughs> could differentiate it uh, between foreigners and and. Uh, uh, U.S. citizens. You could well, differentiate. We well, do differentiate on the basis of age if you get the Golden Age Park. Well, let me give you one differential, which would be individual forms of automobiles coming in. So you could differentiate, Terry, based, for example, when you go over a bridge, oftentimes it's a fee based on what? Axles on a car. <laughs> so you could do axles, you could do number of passengers, you could do head count rather than car itself. So that's one way to do it, a differential. Sure. Sure, and and back to the the question of can poor people go to parks? I've often said we 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 as a country believe that poor people should have access to food, so we have a food stamp program. It would be very easy to differentiate uh, based on income tax returns, for example, and when you send in your return, you get a a, a pass back to you that would allow you into parks because you're poor. I mean, you, you, all kinds of ways you can differentiate. Uh, what would concern me about that is sort of like the idea of handicap stickers in this day and age where a lot of people seem to have handicap stickers and they don't, I'm sorry, they don't look very handicapped necessarily. <laughs> so what if somebody comes rolling into a National Park Service in a very nice car but they have hanging from their dashboard a poor sign 
if you will. What do you do? Yeah. Well, I, you know, and that's that's the problem with differentiation exactly. across the board. Uh, it it does put a burden on the on the right. person sitting in the gate. But let me throw uh, let me throw to, another to system decide. at you though, Terry. What about the idea of having, say, a three price system? There would be an adult price, a children's price, and a seniors price. There already is a senior pass, by the way. You have one, right? Yep. All right. My father, God bless him, he had one too. Used to be ten dollars a year, right? It, I think it's what got increased to eighty dollars last yes. year, correct? Again, with AARP fighting it, of course, right. and and uh, if you think about it, older people tend to be wealthier people because we do accumulate during right. our life cycle. Uh, so who who might be better off? But uh, even at eighty bucks, if you use it three times, yeah. you've got a bargain. Yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, but you're right. I, I you know, and and there again, since a lot of the concern is about how can families afford it, uh, you, you could quite easily say kids are free even mm -hmm. and uh, take care of that while keeping a, an individual uh, fee rather than a carload fee. Okay. Uh, next proposal, Terry, and you've already alluded to this, the idea of having a two-price system, citizens versus non-citizens. Unless we sound xenophobic here, other countries do this, right? Yeah. As I started to say earlier, uh, I went to Maasai Mara National Park in Kenya where the fee for citizens of Kenya was $10. The fee for me as a non-citizen was 70 And this mm -hmm. is per person, right. per day. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there, there's nothing unusual about this. It's not that we're somehow an evil country if we do this. Uh, some parks have as many as 25% of their visitors are foreigners. Yellowstone, you go there and walk around looking at Old Faithful, and you will see you will, you will hear about every language you could imagine. So uh, charging for foreigners, and it makes a lot of sense in that they don't pay the taxes that, that we citizens do. So right. uh, it, it, it is done. It could be done. It can be done easily. Uh, most of the foreigners coming to the park system are coming on tours anyway. Uh, that, but, of course, there again is, a, is the politics. The tour operators are going to say, oh, no, we can't charge them more. Uh, that would cut into the amount that the tour can charge. Okay, let's take another category, which would be some sport, some form of corporate involvement. And I'm not talking about putting billboards in national parks or making it Facebook Grand Canyon National Park, but the idea of corporations chipping in some money. Well, uh, uh, yeah, uh, corporations already do chip in. They they make contributions through uh, various uh, nonprofits that then turn around and support right. the park. Uh, Yellowstone corporations, for example, make donations to the National Endowment of the Arts, the uh, National uh, Public Radio, things sure. like that. Sure. Right. And uh, if you look at the Park Service budget and and how much comes from non-appropriated funds, it tends to run in the 10 to 15% range of the overall budget for the Park Service. And a good share of that comes from donations of one form or the other. So uh, again, back to Africa, I was in, in uh, South Africa last uh, spring about this time, uh, and uh, we went to uh, a, uh, a, a, the Elephant National Park, I've forgotten the name, uh, and as we pulled up to the gate, I took a picture immediately because on one side of the of the gate was a sign for the park, and on the other side was a sign saying this park is supported by the XYZ Energy Company. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that company was making a donation, and, and you know, it wasn't some big flashing billboard with that that somehow destro destroyed the experience. It was just a subtle, hey, we're good guys kind of sign. No, and some people will cringe when you say the word corporation, but I'm not necessarily talking about Starbucks and McDonald's or an oil company. What about, say, Patagonia or North Face, whose brands are just synonymous <laughs> with, with open land? 
Well, and 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 those corporations uh, are are again some of the people, right. are some of the opponents to to increasing fees. Uh, they they want as many people going there wearing their backpacks and and parkas. Uh, that said, uh, to give Patagonia some credit, they do one percent of their profits go to. Of various kinds of conservation, so and and I wouldn't even be surprised to find that some of that goes to national parks already. Okay, another category, Terry, would be some form of, shall we say, cultivation of the land, development. Yeah, well, that <laughs> while while I would uh, be a proponent of that in some li- on some limited the blowback, basis, the blowback would be ferocious. Uh, that is, if, if uh, Secretary Zinke thought he got blowback with right. seventy dollars, uh, he won't be in office long. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a non-starter, and, and uh, I just don't don't think it's likely to happen. Okay, so let's put you in charge of the system. Okay, Terry Anderson, it's your job to come up with a budget for the National Park Service, and also, sir, it's your job to figure out a way to fill this infrastructure hole. How do you do it? Well, th- I think there there are two components here. There's the infrastructure hole, which I'll come to in a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I would start on the operating side uh, of doing just what Rob Bishop of Utah said, is just get a true user fee system in place. Uh, so we've been talking mostly about entrance fees, but right. I like to fish. And I remember when Yellowstone implemented a fishing license, and at first people were like, what, a fishing license? I shouldn't have to pay to fish in my national park. It was $10. And what the park did very well was made sure everybody who bought one of those understood that money went to fisheries management. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're out there decked out from head to foot from the Orvis catalog and you have a $4,000 rod and a a $1,000 reel and, you know, $600 waders, a $10 fishing fee doesn't matter. And if you know it's going to what you want, they're a supplier responding to a demander. Uh, so, so it and the parks again have done a little of this. Uh, charge charge a fee for campgrounds, and now you do. But again, that that took a long time to get implemented. The Congress resisted fees for campgrounds for many many years, uh, but they can charge fees for campgrounds. They can charge fees for for fishing. They can char- they could charge p- fees for tours uh, where the park service is doing the tour. Uh, there, there are all of these options out there that would that that would work. And as I, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, I did a calculation that $11 per person. This, so this didn't give a discount for kids and all those kinds of things. It just was taking the number of people who visited Yellowstone in 2015 or 14. Uh, at the at that visitor rate, if you charge them each $11, Yellowstone would cover its entire budget. Uh, <laughs> you'd say, what? And no, that can't be right. It is right. It, it it just shows how, in one sense, how low their budgets are, uh, on in and in another sense, just uh, how how little it would take to, to do this. The important thing, and this happened with the fishing licenses and was so obvious, is that as soon as the Park Service saw itself as a service supplier and the people saw them as the supplier, it created this, uh, you know, beautiful Adam Smith kind of trade. Uh, the Park Service was was very uh, cognizant of, of what they were using the fishing fees for, the campground fees for, and the people were very appreciative of what it is they were getting in return. Doing the, the backlog, that's that's the biggest problem at all. In fact, there's a hearing uh, in Congress next week uh, to, to look at the backlog, and one of my colleagues from Montana will be testifying. 
uh, it's a bigger problem because it's the $12 billion backlog. Right. Uh, but we have the Land and Water Conservation Fund, for example. A, a, a lot of money comes into that, especially from offshore drilling, and maybe there'll be more because Zinke has proposed more of that. Uh, but a, a share of that ought to be set aside to cover these kind of, of, uh, of, of backlog of, of capital uh, of fees, uh, capital in, uh, investments that need to be made. These are not one-time uh, changes. So, and, and again, I think if the Park Service were charging higher fees, a share of that could be put into a fund that mm-hmm. would be for capital investments. Right. So it's going to take a while to take care of these these uh, uh, this backlog, but I think building up funds like the land and conor- land and water conservation fund and and other such uh, capital fees is the way to deal with that. Not out of just the consu- not just the user fee. Now, when I lived in Virginia, Terry, uh, and you do state taxes each year, there would be a series of questions at the beginning of the form. One of which was, you want to check off a box giving money to I think it was Habitat Restoration of Virginia, Chesapeake Bay Restoration. What about doing something, the equivalent of that, on federal tax forms and asking people if they want to check off a box and donate two or three bucks to the National Park Service? Oh, I think that's eminently doable. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's eminently political. Uh, once again, I think it's important to understand that that Congress really, I mean, there's nothing that people love as much as they love national parks. And so as Congress, you're controlling the thing people love, and Congress wants to keep that control. So even if it were possible to... to, to have such a checkoff, and we can imagine it. And, and you know, if, if sure. it's getting close to tax day and you're looking at that bottom line saying, well, I can at least earmark 15 bucks to my national parks as opposed to, again, the black hole, uh, I think people would do it, but I don't think it's it's something that Congress would, would, would push for. Okay. Let me, I just want to interject one thing, because I, I, I know the current superintendent of Yellowstone quite well, and mm-hmm. And he and I have talked at length about this this fee uh, increase and and about uh, why uh, why seniors should pay more, and uh, you know he again he he gets it he understands what it can mean but he also understands the politics of it and he has to keep his head a little bit low when it comes to proposing and supporting these kinds of changes because he he runs the risk that the congressman who wants that control might come back and say, uh, I remember you were kind of uh, in my face on this, and I'm going to cut your budget. Exactly. Uh, let's talk a bit about Ryan Zinke, <coughs> the job he's doing. You know Secretary Zinke, I trust. Yes, not well, but yes. Uh, fellow Montanan, right? Yes, uh, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, came from Congress into this job. Uh, he's not going to run for the Senate this year, is he? No, well, it would be a little late now. A little late um, to get in? Uh, uh, I don't think he, he will. Uh, and people in Montana wonder what's next for him. Right. Uh, but, yeah, he came from Montana as a congressman, uh, left an, uh, opened a seat that uh, was filled by a Republican. And, and he's, an out, he's an outdoorsman. He likes to wear a hat. He likes to ride horses. He's actually, I think he's ridden a horse around Washington, I believe. Yeah, he, he rode a horse into uh, his first day at the office. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, assess his job. How's he done so far? Oh, I, I give uh, Secretary Zinke straight A's. Uh, I, you know, there are a few, I, I give him a, at least a, a minus behind his A or maybe dro- drop him to a B because he wimped out on his $70 fee. But uh, again, I'm not a politician. So, right. uh, but I think, I think, I think what he's done with the parks in terms of, of the fees is great. I think what he's done with the parks in terms of 
of um, uh, trying to deal with the backlog by creating some money out of the uh, channeling some money out of the land and water conservation fund into a into a capital investment fund it is the right thing to do uh, of course uh, he's he's really taken flack for what he did with national monuments national monuments are a little different from parks uh, different kinds of restrictions on what can happen. They can be run by the National Park Service. And yeah, expand so a bit on what he did on on the National Monuments that sure. caused controversy. Uh, so, this it, goes it, this goes back to Teddy Roosevelt's 1906. Yes, law, 1906, right? and and uh, Teddy Roosevelt created the first National Monument that was 40 acres at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Right, uh, and uh, those National Monuments were were to be set aside to, to preserve the antiquities. It's called the Antiquities Act. Right. Uh, and uh, early on, it was things like Devil's Tower. It took 40 acres. There mm -hmm. was a, uh, Lewis and Clark Caverns in Montana, very small national monument initially, eventually turned over to the state park system. Right. But these were, these were tiny pieces of land mm -hmm. until recently. And, and, and recently, uh, I think the the conservation community, dare I say, environmental community, uh, really got into the act and started saying, well, it's not just enough to save uh, a, a small area like the Devil's Tower. We need everything around it. It's not right. enough to save Grand Gulch in, in southern Utah, which has incredible cliff dwellings. Uh, we need everything around it saved. And so uh, th this has been growing since since really the 1980s, I suppose you'd say, uh, with presidents each time adding another monument or two or more right. and, and getting them big. So uh, Bill Clinton uh, added the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah, 2.3 right. million acres. So we're talking an area the size of Yellowstone National and Park. It, is that the issue, Terry? Is it the size of the is it the size of land grab, or is it also that the law itself is rather elastic? Because as I understand the law, yes, it's, it's it's historic landmarks, it's matters of historic or prehistorical structures, but it's also what comes under the category of historic slash scientific interest. Yes, uh, and and as soon as you put that last part, scientific right. interest. Uh, I mean, it could be scientific interest because of geology. It could be scientific interest because of wildlife or, mm -hmm. or uh, flora. You know, there, there's just no end to, to what it can be expanded to include. Uh, I think that, and I think that that uh, expansion has has been taken advantage of mm -hmm. to include many things that if we looked at we'd say yeah it's beautiful but i'm not quite sure what this scientific interest is historic right. interest is or antiquity interest so is. getting back to zinke he comes into office in 2017 and <coughs> he does what yeah he came to office and did what his boss told him to do mm -hmm. president trump said review 25 national monuments that were created in the uh, or uh, i'm not sure now i think it was the Re re review monuments created in the last 25 years. I'm not sure how many there were. Right. But the two big ones were the Grand Staircase Escalante created by Clinton and then the Bears Ears National Monument uh, created by uh, Barack Obama and another monument not quite as big in Nevada, I forgot the name of. Uh, and uh, the whole purpose was to review them and ask, did we really need to have uh, these areas as large as they were uh, to protect the kinds of things that the Antiquities, uh, Antiquities Act covered. Mm -hmm. Zinke went out, looked at them, actually toured many of them, got, got 
written up in the paper for hiring a helicopter, but it was the only way to get around and right. look at some of this land. Uh, and after he looked at them, he said, I think we can reduce these. So he took Bears Ears, the, the big controversial one from Obama, which controversial, I should, I should note, in that the Utah people, the delegations, the local uh, county uh, commissioners and, and city mayors were opposed to almost <laughs> to an, uh, a person. Uh, they said, this is just too big. And he reviewed that and said, let's cut it from 1.9 million acres to 200,000 acres into two sections, uh, both of which have significant uh, antiquities in the, in the form of mostly uh, uh, native uh, dwellings, cliff dwellings. Uh, and said the rest of it will stay under, uh, people say, oh, he took the rest out of protection. No, they're right. still protected. There's still the Forest and Land and Management Policy Act. There's still the Endangered Species Act. There, there are lots of laws out there that, that cover what can be done with these. Uh, so it's not as though they somehow just opened them to rape and pillage. So he, he, he looked at several of these. He reduced Grand Staircase Escalante. He looked at one in Montana that was created uh, more than 20-some years ago and it's still quite controversial, but he said, I'm leaving it alone because you communities seem to be working out the details of how that how that land will be managed. As I said, they, they, they could be managed by the National Park Service, the one I'm talking about is managed by the Bureau of Land Management, but, uh, but those agencies have a lot more flexibility in managing a national monument than they do a national park. They can have uh, development uh, of there can be cattle grazing. There can even be uh, oil and gas development. So uh, he he left some alone because he said we think we've we've kind of settled that enough. There's no reason to to go back and and shake up the uh, the the mix again. Right. He's also stumbled into controversy over offshore oil drilling. Yeah, it, and uh, so back to the yeah. Zinke grade. Uh, you know, I give him I, almost all of his land issues. I think he's done a great job on. Uh, he said, open up the offshore oil drilling. I don't know the, the uh, ins and outs of why he said, open them in California, but not in Florida. And that's right. received a lot of press. And, and you know, I, I don't, I, I can't say for sure whether there's a good rationale for that. But there is a good rationale for at least exploring the opportunities there. Mm -hmm. uh, and that rationale is much of this oil development uh, can be done far safer than it was when we had the Santa Barbara Channel spill, uh, which basically shut down California oil exploration. That, that Now our safety measures, that I know the Deep Horizon uh, incident is, is again, uh, ways in people's mind, but there there are always some risks. But, you know, this is a place to, to get some energy. Uh, but more importantly to me as a conservationist, and I think to this discussion of national parks, it's a place where we can use the the energy revenues we, we create from those to finance the kinds of things we want for our national parks, such as this $12 billion backlog. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I think, again, his energy policies have been, been really quite good. So um, back to the parks issue, Terry. $35 now, 30 35 bucks to get into a, a park as opposed to be 25 to $30. What happens a couple of years from now when the National Park Service looks at its budget and realizes, you know, we still don't have the money to deal with infrastructure? This reminds me of the post office. The post office was forever trying to find a way to, to, to you know, balance its budget. And so what do they do? They periodically increase the price of a stamp. Uh, in odd numbers, I don't understand. It goes to 29 cents instead of 30 and 37 instead of 40. But they're forever slowly increasing the price of stamps mm -hmm. on you. 
we could do this for the foreseeable future for automobile entry fees to parks if we want to, mm-hmm. and we could slowly move it up to $40 or even 45 or 50 eventually, but it's not going to solve the problem, is it? No, it won't. It, especially, it won't solve the $12 billion backlog problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it, it, again, I go back to the point I made about connecting the supplier and the demander. I think it makes the Park Service much more aware of what it what it offers, why it's offering it, what people demand from it. Most people, you know, never never leave the roads. Even they pull into right. a parking lot, go lo- watch Old Faithful spout off, and get back in their car and drive to the next thing they're going to visit, and right. and then leave that park and drive to Grand Teton. And or maybe they drive around a bit, look for a buffalo or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. oh but, yeah, but then sure. eventually but, they get out. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the Park Service, I think, if it if it can could charge these fees, gets much more cognizant of what the demanders want, and and you know, the, the, even the increase to thirty five, even had it gone to seventy, this was not a, a a rocket ship rise in prices that would continue. I mean, it 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 we saw what happened. It was hard to get it to five dollars. Uh, so I don't think this is some. Uh, trajectory uh, toward uh, some something that's back to the 507 that that uh, was the first fee into into uh, mm-hmm. Mount Rainier I think though to the to the post office point you're making is is a question of does the what will the park service do with these fees right. and, and uh, once again I think the important point is that that the park service once connected with consumers, will use them far more effectively than if it's just a a, a grant from Congress. Uh, when they get their annual appropriations, they they don't look as much at you know what will make my consumer happy. It's it's uh, you know what will make my employer employees happy, and so you've got this huge bureaucracy that's fighting for the budgets and 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 it 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 makes them always go up, but not with an eye towards the consumer. Okay, final question, Terry, and I'll let you go. Uh, is Ryan Sickey going to venture into this issue again, or is this the one and only time he's going to raise fees at national parks? I think that, that I, I'm guessing he's going to at least keep a lower profile for a while. Right. Uh, but I think that what it has done, uh, I keep coming back to Rob Bishop's comment today, I think what it has done is raised in the awareness of people uh, just the potential for fees as a way to deal with some issues in the national parks. I think it will make some people in Congress m- a little more receptive to saying maybe we should raise the fees. And I think it will make some people in the Park Service a little more receptive to the idea, especially when they see, yeah, we got a little more money. And as I said, I don't think $5 in Yellowstone is going to make a big difference. But uh, but it does it does show up in their budgets, and mm-hmm. and I think uh, I think it 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 has the potential of opening the door for a more reasonable uh, management of parks based on a, a market type, a market incentive at least uh, through the fee structure. Maybe they need to get the president involved. I remember back when Bill Clinton was running for re-election, Terry, and they actually focus group what sort of summer vacation he should take. The Clinton's predilection was always to go to Martha's Vineyard and hang out with the Kennedys and go on nice sailboats. And their poster, Dick Morris, said, you know, this is pretty bad optics. We're running for re-election. <laughs> and what they settled on was having the president and Mrs. Clinton and Chelsea go to, a, go to a state park and camp out in a state park for a couple of days. 
Maybe President Trump and, and Melania need to go to a, a state park or a national park for a couple of days. Uh, I'm sure, like uh, myself, all the listeners are trying to envision what that would look like. I think the word glamping comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe something above that, whatever it is. Very good. Terry Anderson, I enjoyed the conversation. Oh, and I as well. It's always great to be with you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Terry Anderson and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalum. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.